ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It sounds like like such a simply good idea. Uh, Victoria will end all native forest logging in January next year. Western Australia has similar plans. A pressure is on in New South Wales for that state to follow suit. But but stopping logging, it, it raises as many questions as it saves trees. So much of Australian forest has been managed post-1788 as a resource for timber. What's the management regime now if that timber felling stops? Some would argue in favour of an idea of conservation, of a, of a return perhaps to wilderness, a natural state. Uh, but these are forests that for tens of thousands of years have been human-managed. Managed not for timber, but in a partnership between country and Indigenous Australians. This is a conversation that we'll be hearing more about. It is complex. Professor Michael Sean Fletcher is a Wiradjuri man and Director of Research Capability at the Indigenous Knowledge Institute. He's also a physical geographer and Assistant Dean Indigenous for the Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne. Michael Sean Fletcher, hello. Hello, Jonathan, how are you? This is an interesting moment, is it not? Um, So much is shifting in the management of the the remaining forests of this country, and it raises all these questions around Indigenous management, around conservation principles, around the idea of of wilderness. Yeah, we're at a really crucial point, actually, in the trajectory of Australian forest systems, particularly in the southeast and uh, southwest, where Forests are dominated by one of, if not the most flammable tree on earth, a tree that has, has been banned in some countries because it's so flammable. And how we move forward under an increasingly changing climate and increasing population pressures, bringing ignition sources into these systems is really, really crucial for the long-term health and sustainability of country and people. Name that tree. Eucalyptus or the uh, <laughs> gum tree. This is true. And, and, and fire is, of course... Um either human-caused or naturally has always been a part of these environments. The mountain ash, for example, is a, is a tree which beds its seed in ash. Yeah, yeah, there are, and there are a few, not very many, but a few eucalypt trees that are really tuned into infrequent catastrophic hot fires, such as the mountain ash and the alpine ash and a couple of other the big, tall Uh, long, slow-growing eucalypts that act as almost like a rainforest plant in their wet environments. The vast majority of uh, eucalypts burn more frequently and are what we call re-sprouters. They they regenerate after fires and and sometimes quite prolifically. And they're tuned into a very different kind of fire regime. So we have to take in a bit of nuance and a bit of understanding about the the kinds of systems we're dealing with. A eucalypt isn't a eucalypt. There are all sorts of different kind of fire regimes across all these forests. And what you what you said there too about infrequent and severe, that's a pattern which is changing both due to um, human influence but also due to climate change. It is, it is. And that kind of infrequent, hot, catastrophic uh, fire that is that is key to, you know, a restricted number of eucalypt communities, as we just discussed, mm. is now frequenting vast areas of eucalypt forests and it's having really, really significant impacts. And, uh, I mean, fire is one aspect of the argument, but it's 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 probably a critical one and 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 one which will come to the point in this this coming summer. but even even that issue of fire, there is considerable argument about 
uh, whether logging and whether the, the 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 burning that is done is actually a thing which is has a, an effective prophylactic effect. Does that either halt or encourage the sort of fire that we're talking about? Yeah, there's a, a really a big debate at the moment, you know, and it's, it's sort of playing out and, and there's uh, equally both vociferous and co- sort of committed arguments on both sides that, that logging reduces fire or logging actually promotes fire. And I think it does both depending on the system. The, the one thing we often do is simplify it to eucalypt forests. You know, we're talking mm. about an expansive forest that runs from the tropics to the to essentially the sub-Antarctic in Antarctic in Tasmania. So there are there are differences all across that forest estate. And the impacts of various management approaches is going to be different depending on where you are and what you're doing. But the one thing we do know, and from the sort of data that I collect, is it across much of that area, and we've looked at areas from uh, Bundjalung country near Byron Bay right through to Wadawurrung country in, in South East Australia to the west of Melbourne, is that most of the eucalypt forests that we have today had substantially less eucalypts in them under the care and management of Aboriginal people prior to the British invasion. We just know that, and they have substantially less fire in them. Now, that's not including some of those Uh, particular systems like the alpine and mountain ash, which have always and will always require that kind of infrequent hot fire. But the vast majority of the the forest estate from from the north right through to the south and the east of Australia is now uh, much different than it was under Aboriginal care and management. And there's there's a slow apprehension of the of the truth of that. I mean, the, and, and you know, f- through people like Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe, for example. I mean, the the, the examples that that Gamage cites in his greatest estate on earth, a, original European witness to those forests in the early days of of colonisation, of, of describing them as parkland, describing them as open space. Um, yeah, it's actually hard hard to encounter a writing of a dense forest and all that early stuff. It's it's almost uh, always about how park-like, how beautiful, even even here near where I am in, in Nam, in, in Melbourne, down to the south on Bunurong country and on the Mornington Peninsula, there's there's writings about it being some of the, the most splendid pastures on earth, you know, this sort of open park-like country in areas now which are either vineyards or or forests, you know. So this the landscape has changed substantially. That change has been manifest as as a huge increase in the load of fam- flammable fuels, and in particular eucalypts, which are just incredibly flammable. And that has, and we know this empirically, we know this from the scientific data that has resulted in more fire. And the, the critical thing here that this does is that fire science is the fundamental principle of fire science is what we call a fire triangle, you know, and, and it's it's this combination of ignition. You need an ignition, you need fuels, which is vegetation, and you need those fuels to be dry enough to burn. Mm. So climate change is acting on the dryness of those fuels. The fuel load itself is also influential. So if you increase the fuel load, you actually need less climate change to give you catastrophic fires. And the reverse is true. If you can reduce that fuel load and bring a lower amount of fuel in, you give more space for the system to handle more climate change. So you can actually, at the moment, we're solely focused on climate change and trying to sort of toggle that lever, if you like, and and understand how we can reduce the, the impacts of climate change, which ironically in this country a large part of it is through the sequestration of carbon on land 
by planting more eucalypts, <laughs> which, you know, this sort of <laughs> irony there uh, is not lost on me. So we've sort of forgotten or, or, it's, or it's sort of blurred over that actually meaningfully meaningfully toggling that that fuel, that vegetation component of that uh, dynamic can reduce the amount of fires and give these systems more amplitude or resilience to to the effects of climate change. What you said before too about the 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 great, you know, there is not one uh, a one size fits all uh, proposition that can be applied to forest in this country, and that speaks to the truth of indigenous management of these spaces. That it was a very intimate relationship with. Small, yeah. small areas of of this place, and and areas known with with tremendous knowledge and and cared for over tremendous periods of time, and and creating environments that now uh, people would would regard as just being the natural world, when in fact it was a formed world. Yeah, yeah, and you've hit the nail right on the head there. It's. We now look at and approach these areas at the sort of the remote sensing scale, you know, like these really huge scales. And don't get me wrong, the, the remote sensing and, and GIS and, and all of these amazingly powerful tools have given us great insights, but they've taken us away from the human scale, the intimacy that actually living on country, living on a landscape, walking through country, feeling sensing, understanding what country needs is now lost. And that's a resourcing issue. It's a scale issue that we've lost that intimacy. And I, this really hit me quite profoundly after the 2019-2020 fires. And I was driving out to um, Forestec Gunai Kurnai um, country to, to speak to GLOAC, the, the Gunai Kurnai Land and Waters Corporation, uh, a lot about you know the impacts of the fires. And I was driving through hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of forest and and it all sort of could be blurred in as one and I thought to myself, actually, I'm travelling through multiple mm. people's land here who would have and did manage that side of a hill differently to that side of the hill, managed at this scale that was much smaller and more intimate and reflexive to conditions than what we are capable of doing now or even plan to do now. And we're really dealing with the effects of that kind of... Um, Mismanagement, not through uh, any reason other than our sort of shift towards trying to cover more or get more out of less input and less resources by relying on this sort of remote sensing, big scale, big management area kind of um, ideology. And even when, um, you know, the, the, the government managers of these spaces want to introduce more Indigenous knowledge into the process, it's usually as a, a blanket panacea. Let's get more cultural burning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, without a consideration of what that is in the micro. It is, you know, and that that's still through the lens and there's a fundamental difference here. I mean, humans for the last 1.4 million years have had a relationship with fire. I mean, we, we are, fire is integral to who we are, yet this landscape has been and is continued in parts to be managed with fire for at least 50,000, 60,000 years. Now the predominant approach to fire governing this landscape is one that's sort of conducted by paramilitary organisations who are designed around control and suppression mm. and this ideology of removal. It's almost fighting a war with fire. And that's nothing against the wonderful and brave people who do this, but the, the, the paradigm there is one of fighting fire, not embracing fire. And the other paradigm there is cultural burning is seen as this add-on to replace this thing called hazard reduction burning, which is about 
mitigating the impacts of fire around life and property, not about caring for a forest. And there's a fundamental issue there about caring for an, uh, for country, about understanding what country needs through its entirety. Some areas don't get burnt because they're protected from fire because they're important culturally, economically, spiritually. Some areas get burnt very frequently. Um, these, this sort of complex of of approaches across a landscape at fine scale gives us a diverse landscape, which increases our biodiversity, and it actually has a net um, product of reducing overall fuel loads and breaking those fuel loads up and stopping those big fires from rolling through and, and burning from you know half half the length of the continent. So in, in these conversations which are occurring now, and let's take the example of Victoria, which decided this year to bring forward the, ninth, the, the 2030 end of native forest logging to 2024, to next January. In, in the conversations that have followed that, do you, do you get a sense that that sort of nuance is, is being addressed, that the bigness of this moment and the decisions that it implies is, is being seen and being dealt with? Uh, you know, frankly, I don't think it is. I think it's being done for the right reasons. I mean, the the kind of logging that has happened, particularly in Victoria, has been you know, very inappropriate. The clear felling and and really destructive kind of approach to to forestry, which give, has given forestry a bad name. Forestry in other countries is is actually quite sustainable and manages to to exist with biodiversity and cultural values and and these other kinds of things that we're looking for. The whole scale cessation of logging of the kind that's happening now is a good thing. Don't get me wrong; I don't uh, disagree with that. But what it can't be, and then in combination with the federal government saying we're going to lock up another 30% of the continent um, to protect biodiversity, combination of those two things really alarms me because if we look at national parks, they are some of the least intensively cared for and managed plots of land that we have. And they are some of the areas that get really, really torched by the fires and present problems because of the continual fuel load in them for areas around them. They're actually very dangerous to live around if there's a catastrophic fire because this sort of conservation approach, and not all conservation is like this, there's a certain sect of conservation that sort of has its roots in that wilderness ideology that thinks putting up a fence around it or blocking an area off and letting it go is beneficial to these areas. But what we see in a landscape that has had care and management for so long and that all of the organisms and all the biodiversity that developed in those areas depends on is now being robbed of any kind of contact, any kind of care, any kind of management. And the danger here is we just create more tinderbox, more areas that are just going to turn into a great conflagration one day, and, and then that destroys biodiversity. That that actually puts us in the negative when it comes to carbon um, output and sequestration. It, it releases more carbon and inhibits these systems from accumulating carbon for a decade or two. So that they're actually just bad all around. And we've, we're sort of living now, and I, I have this sort of, um, uh, sort of oversimplified spectrum in my head of where on one end society is made up of people who think the environment is there mm. just to take and extract from, you know, this sort of narcissistic view. And that's given rise to this, well, all human activity is bad and this kind of misanthropic human-hating view of, well, we've got to reduce all human activity in these areas to offset the ills that we do. And we ignore this intermediate um, space of appropriate care and engagement and appropriate care for country. And that's the space that Aboriginal people have and always will live in about caring for country, giving country what it needs, because we're not actually separate from country. We're a part of it. 
and our health is dependent on the health of country. And that sort of ties in with this notion with a bunch of Aboriginal communities around Australia to whom wild country, mm. I guess what you would call wilderness, actually is sick country and it needs care. So we, we need to get to this middle ground uh, of, and that's what's going to give us our sustainability and our health long term. And that's not, as we just discussed earlier, the, the one size fits all across the whole place. It's going to be some areas don't get burnt. Some areas get managed intensively. Some areas get this, some areas get that. But we, at the scale we're operating at now and the lack of investment in um, grassroots, on the ground, intimate um, relationship with our country, that kind of style of uh, care and management, it's not going to happen. So it's a, we're it's at a this point, really crucial, I, crucial point. I, I wonder too, I mean, this all depends on... Uh, you know the, the the other aim of of uh, the, the colonial project, if you like, has been to remove people from their country, to to break that relationship between Indigenous Australians and the places in which they live and live with. Yeah, and what you're suggesting, though, you know, implies a restoration of of that relationship. What I wonder is whether the knowledge is still sufficiently intact to scale up to provide the sort of response that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, bang on again. I mean, the, the whole stated purpose of colonisation was to, to break people's relationship with this place and each other and their culture, you know, the, the, the uh, banning of language and, and removal of country and all this kind of uh, these things that happened. Yeah, I, it's a common concern, I guess, or question that I'm often asked when I'm, when I'm talking to people. And my answer is that there is deep knowledge out there the one thing that we assume is that because when we we've suddenly have this uh, light bulb moment agencies have this light bulb moment they go out to community and say hey oh we realize we've done wrong we want to get cultural burning in here um you know who knows how to do it or but they just expect people who whose family or even themselves in some cases who had culture and language and knowledge beaten out of them starved out of them through ration control all of these this long history of still very visceral effects of, of colonisation on people, they're not just going to put their hand up and say, yeah, here's my knowledge, I'll give it to you. But through sitting down quietly with time, building a relationship, Aborigin the one fundamental difference, I think, between Aboriginal epistemologies or, or ways of doing things and non-Aboriginal um, in this country is the prioritisation of a relationship of trust before any kind of um, information is allowed to flow in 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 either direction. Like it's this this sole priority. We have a very transactional society. I can rely on on meeting someone in the street and and doing a business transaction with them, and that could involve millions of dollars as long as I can tick off their credentials. <laughs> and we have this expectation that we should be able to access anything we want just because we have the stated aim of having that. <laughs> Whereas. Aboriginal people, we need a relationship and you'll find, and I, I find this time and time again, there is so much knowledge still out there that it can be reawakened or re-engaged with. And then the areas that in which colonisation has been so effective to, to sort of quench a lot of that knowledge, we have the simple fact that there are people like Victor Stephenson and other amazing fire practitioners with diverse knowledge of diverse systems and, and diverse places that we can rediscover that, that we can apply these um, technologies. And the one thing that we do know is that business as usual is just going to end us up in a deeper and deeper hole. And we've got to 
as a society, not I don't think it's take the risk, just have the confidence to give Aboriginal people the chance to put their hands on the wheel for a while. Well, that's a, a tremendous challenge, and this is, as you point out, is is a moment uh, to or to seize that challenge, to to put that in place in the structures that are going to have to emerge from the changes that, that we are making. We're not going to come up with a solution to this conversation, but really appreciate the, the, the depth of that thinking. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the yarn. Professor Michael Sean Fletcher uh, is a Wiradjuri man, a, a Director of Research Capability of the Indigenous Knowledge Institute, Physical Geographer of uh, the Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 